Welcome. We're coming to you on the Pantheon Podcast Network with a special edition of the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. A couple of weeks ago, the new documentary about the Beatles, Get Back, was released and everybody's been talking about it. And since I'm a big Beatles fan, I wanted to talk about it too. So I invited three of the biggest Beatles fans I know to join me. Ken Mills is the host of multiple podcasts, including Pop, Cheap Talk, and Zilch, the Monkeys podcast. Craig Smith is one of the hosts on the Pods and Sods network. And Brian Jacobs is a frequent guest on Pods and Sods. And all three are thoughtful, articulate, and passionate fans of the Beatles. So I couldn't have three better people on the show to talk about the Beatles and this fantastic new documentary, Get Back. This episode runs over an hour. It's our longest episode yet. But considering that there's almost eight hours of documentary footage, well, we had a lot to talk about. Here's our conversation. Well, Brian Jacobs, Ken Mills, and Craig Smith, thank you for joining me this afternoon to talk about Beatles Get Back. Um, I guess first off, let me ask, what were your expectations was it anything like you were expecting? Was it exactly what you were expecting? Brian Jacobs, you go first. I just did not have a tremendous expectation. I thought initially it seemed slow at times uh, during the first episode, and it just got better and better. Craig? I'd, I'd lived with bootlegs of this material since I was 14 years old. So uh, I, I don't know, know that I really had expectations, but I had some hopes that there would be video footage, film footage to go a alongside some of the bits that I remember from the albums I had as a kid. So um, it's not my favorite portion of Beatles in terms of their catalog. So I didn't even really necessarily get excited about it until I put it on and I realized, wow, this is going to be a lot more involved than I thought it was going to be. So it, it seems to be a very, almost as faithful as you can get, probably to just having access to the complete film. And Ken, your thoughts? Well, you know, I always say I just love the Beatles, right? I'm not an expert. I just love the Beatles. But I know that when I first started watching it, I was not prepared for any of it. I was so blown away to see that uh, it wasn't Paul McCartney the first one that showed up because the narrative is that Paul was a taskmaster and always pushing people and he was the first one there and the last to leave. And it was really George and John. They were the ones that were already working on things and Paul comes in and grabs his base. He was the last person to show up. And then you think you heard about, well, John was on heroin this time and da-da-da-da-da and he was so detached and disinterested. Again, he was one of the first people there, but then he's sitting there and he says to George, who's that little old man there? If, if that didn't like blow you away as a Beatle fan who has seen Hard Day's Night a million times, but it, it just kind of took me by surprise. I, did it you guys as well when he did that little joke that he, he did? Yeah, he, he says, who's times. that little old man? And then Paul says, very clean though. And it's completely, you know, the lines from Hard Day's Night. Who's that little old man? Oh, is he the Hardy It just really did blow me away. Just, just fantastic. It, and you know, I've heard a lot of people say that they want to see like a version of this aimed at 
the mainstream, you know, because there's a lot of people that were complaining about this. They would say, uh, I, why are we seeing this same song over and over and over again? Because anybody that's ever been in a band, that's what you do. Except that any of the bands that I was in never happened to write Let It Be or Get Back. So, <laughs> Yeah, th- these sessions aren't really friendly to make a casual film about. There's There's nothing exciting about the making of another record except this added layer of they're trying to get it together for this end game, whatever it might be. But it's really a great insight into the creative process, the creative process under pressure, because the pressure they put on themselves is really insane. Nobody would do that today. There would be some manager who would stop them, (laughs) who would stop any artist from saying, we're going to do a TV show in two weeks, all new material. This is coming just two months after the release of the White Album. Right, which was yeah, two albums weeks. worth of material, which right? insane. Yeah, so yeah. they're pretty spent on new material, you would think. The, the things that popped up to me most while watching this are the little Easter eggs, like we find out these sessions were originally to do live versions of White Album songs. Mm-hmm. And that was dropped in favor of, well, let's write an all-new album. This TV show and was supposed to be a TV show of the last album. The last album. Yes. But when we came to do it, we said we'll write new songs. Because that's it, you see. We always, we never, we always keep ahead of ourselves. Had they backtracked to that original plan, imagine that we would have had, like, a television special from 1968. How great would that have been? Or, you know, 1969, looking at the 1968 material. Um, it just seems like a missed opportunity, but one that I'd never, ever heard about before seeing this. And there's a lot of stuff sprinkled through this that even the experts were like, well, this really gives context towards all these pieces that we've looked at, you know, for years and years now. Yeah. Well, let's jump into that first episode. Let's kind of go episode by episode and, and looking back at the first episode, some of the stuff in there was just some of my favorite stuff in the entire show, but what jumped out at at you guys seeing get back yeah conjure out of thin air for me i think was the highlight literally Amazing. literally out of thin air it's it, it it's the goose of the entire show i think it's the the biggest goosebump moment watching him fumble around and then suddenly find that melody agreed And then it becomes a Commonwealth. Hey, dog, you better go home. Commonwealth, yes. Commonwealth, yes. 
And uh, it, it's weird to see the, the Beatles get woke, right? Because that's the narrative with a lot of people. Why are you bringing politics and everything? They were. They, right there, they were doing that. So it was happening as it was happening. And I know that every once in a while I wanted to, like, scream, everyone be quiet. Paul's playing Let It Be for the first time. <laughs> There's a moment where, like you said, Let It Be, where Paul is playing that riff on the piano over and over and over again in the background while there's all this other stuff. And he's just sitting there working it out. And, and, and Ringo at one point says, I could just watch him play piano all day. Yeah. Yeah. Or something, you know. See, I've watched an hour of him just playing the piano. Me too. Uh, it's so great. But like, I think, see, I think we just got to find a place which would complement it. And I just don't see it being here on a stage with tubular scaffolding around it. Then we can control all our lights from a panel, and we can have what colors you like. Yes. You'll always be able to see us through everything. I can see where George felt that he was like disrespected because his thing was, I'm not, I don't want to go on a boat, which, by the way, you know, the Beatles could have been doing Beatle cruises back in 1969. Right. Look at all yeah. that money they pissed they away, could have right? Inv yeah, invented now, the rock and roll cruise, right? And I always thought that it was Paul that was doing all the pushing. Turns out it was Michael Lindsay Hogg. Right. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Very early on, Paul says, we're not going abroad. And I think that's entirely yeah. in support of George and Ringo, because Ringo really didn't like to travel with his his stomach issues or whatever. But they were there was that solidarity there. But man, Michael Lindsay Hogg just will not give up on that idea about Tripoli. He just brings that up well, a half right. a dozen times. Right. I think if you all have decided to do a show, then it should be the best show, because you are the Beatles. You aren't four jerks. You know what I mean? The only thing about that, though, is that uh, we don't want to go away. Think of the lights in the water, torch lit, 2,000 arrows. You know, I mean, visually, it is fantastic. Oh, we're not going away. My trouble is, I usually get talk, talked over a good idea. I will every day say Tripoli, and every day I get close to the left fist. He has a job to do. He does. He's right. thinking about how it's going to look on the big screen, right? Right. Or, yeah. Well, or or whether or not it was the small screen, but he's he's thinking grandly, right? But uh -huh. and if if I'm not mistaken, truly throughout, George was really not in favor of anything. George said he didn't want to play on the roof, right? You know, he didn't want to go abroad. He thought every all the ideas were too expensive, you know. Well, if uh, anything, George is being more reasonable in the sense that he's saying we should be working on these songs instead of worrying about are we going to do it at the Grand Canyon with fireworks going off as we end the last song. George is like, let's get to the music. Michael Lindsay Hogg comes in with his, well, we could go to Libya and you could get a weird hat and we could do it in Israel and we could do it here. And I think we can do rock and roll at dawn or at, at night. And I'm sure we can do the rock and roll there if we get the right audience. And George, come on. I just want to get it over with. <laughs> uh, they kept referring to Brian Epstein in part one as Mr. Epstein. Yes. And it, it was it was not uh, disrespectful in any way, shape or form. There was a no, I thought it was, it was super respectful. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it was, was very... like he was the adult. Right. Ever since Mr. Epstein passed away, it's never been the same. I mean, we've been very negative since Mr. Epstein passed away. And that's why all of us in turn has been sick of the group. It's discipline we lack. We've never had discipline. We've had sort of slight symbolic discipline, like Mr. Epstein. 
you know, and he sort of said, get suits on, and we did. Mm. Yeah, and so we, we were sort of always fighting that discipline a bit. <laughs> there really is no one there now to say, do it. Whereas there always used to be, but daddy's gone away now, you know. And we're on our own at the holiday camp. And, you know, I think we either go home or we do it. Um, but it was neat in the first uh, part was uh, George talking about Billy Preston. And it, it wasn't anything that was planned. Just It's yeah. just there. It's just he's not even really moments, talking right? about bringing Billy Preston in. He's just, they somehow get into this conversation about jazz and, and he says the best jazz band he ever saw was, was Ray Charles and Billy stole the show and he mm-hmm. goes on about Billy for a while. The best jazz band I saw was Ray Charles' band. Yeah, I mean, that's jazz. Really. Moves me fantastic. Anyway. Yeah. It's fantastic. Billy Preston was too much. I'm sure you'll do you when you see. Billy plays piano with the band, and then he does his own spot where he sings and dances and plays organ solo, and then Ray Charles comes on. He's become so really because he's like too much because he plays organ. So great now. Ray Charles doesn't bother with the organ now. He just I'll leave it to the young guy. Too much. One thing that was really neat was seeing all four of the Beatles on the drum kit at some point. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Happens in every band, doesn't it? You know, we tend to think of, well, Paul's on bass, George is on lead guitar, and Ringo's on drums, and so on and so forth. Not in this band. It's it's wherever you need to be. All utility players, I guess, is the uh, phrasing. And uh, when George does say, well, I'm out, you know, they were working on two of us, and I almost felt like he was, like, thinking of the two of us as John and Paul. And I'm not part of that too. Did that anybody else pick up on that? But like yeah. in terms of placement, it's a strange placement for it because it's just after, I mean, there's, there's no real big buildup to it. He's just like, I, I think I'll be leaving the band now. Right. It's I, the most gentlemanly so, quitting. There was no is, middle finger, no big F you, you know, no screaming. Yeah. We'll talk to George about residuals and, and George Harrison is like, no, he shouldn't be bothered with that. Like it's, yeah. it's all very, very calm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it, it's like, he's just leaving to run an errand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think I'll be le- uh, leaving huh? the band now. When? Now, get a few places. The NME and get a few people. Well, that's yours to see what pains uh, But he shouldn't be bothered with that. You know, that's why we've got Apple. So, you know, we attend to our sounds. We aim to please. Are you still turning? He is? I found it rather astounding how cold they all seemed in reaction to him leaving. They just Very like, so. gone, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's I, 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 found it. I think There's you no could all over anything, shall we say? Yeah. You know? I, I think you could chalk some of that up to kind of the sort of, you know, macho y posturing and just the way John very callously says, well, we'll just get Clapton, you know, right. Maybe for the show, I mean, you could just say George was sick. No, I mean, if he leaves, he leaves. But what's the consensus? Do you want to go on with the show and the work? Yeah, if he doesn't come back by Tuesday, we get clapped. 
on the other hand, if someone quits, it usually is when things get to a hot blooded moment, right? This wasn't, this was just like, now it's time for me to go in his own head. It was in his own inner monologue. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm done. This is, I've got to get out of here. You know, I always, it's, it's so frustrating because they, they run through all things must pass, which is an amazing song. I think it's one of mm -hmm. George's best songs. I think if the Beatles had recorded it, it would have been one of the Beatles best songs. Um, yes, yeah. And, and, and yet he pulls it and he gives them for you blue, which is a throwaway if there ever was one. Oh, so the chords really are E to F sharp minor, the E to A, E to F sharp minor, E to A. All things must pass. All things must pass. I think it was just, you know, enough is enough, and it boiled over at that moment. But, but I mean, keep in mind, when we say enough is enough, we're talking about after a tremendous amount of insistence on Michael Lindsay Hogg. It's weird. The narrative was that Yoko split up the Beatles, but it turned out it was actually Michael Lindsay Hogg. I, I think it's a little both, because you do yeah. see them have a conversation about, about how Yoko being there is intrusive. They definitely had talks about it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I think that... And I'm, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's whitewashed, but they do kind of underplay that whole thing. There's a very famous line, Yoko wants a mic after right. George leaves. And then they do that whole jam session. But like Yoko wants a mic became kind of like a catchphrase of Yoko-ness and right. the Beatles breaking up. And they and audio exists of that. They chose not to put that in the film. And I think for Probably for that reason, to, but yeah, definitely. I don't think it was a bad call. I don't think that they're presenting anything that isn't the truth, but they definitely do kind of leave in a little bit about how there was drama with Yoko being there. Right. But I doubt that someone knitting is actually going to break up a band. Well, I would hope not. Then again, I've, I've talked to guys that are in bands that say, you know, it's not the, uh, the weird thing that, that kind of happens with lawyers, but sometimes it happens because someone took the last apple on the tour bus. That was mine, damn it. You know, and then like it turns into a big thing. You know? Yes. If I'm in if I'm in a band and somebody steals my digestive biscuits, I'm leaving the band. <laughs> there there are there are limits. And notice they left that out too. <laughs> Yeah, that should have just been in there for humor's sake. I agree. Um, it was That's cool so, to appealing, uh, doesn't it? Uh, very much. Digestive biscuits. <laughs> yeah, very have British. Some digest. As a matter of fact, this episode is brought to you by Digestive Biscuits, <laughs> endorsed by George Harrison. Before we get to the second episode, what was your experience with the original Let It Be film? When did you see it? How did you take it when you first saw it? I, I could jump in because my mic be the earliest. Um, I had a, a sketchy family member 
who may have been a drug dealer who had tons of Beatles memorabilia. He would set me up with all kinds of stuff. The first thing I got was a videotape on SLP speed and it had that, it had Shay, it had rock show, um, Bangladesh. And, and Bangladesh. Thank you. Um, all of those on it. So it was uh, something that I experienced very early on. And I went to my first Beatle fest in 87. They showed it on the big screen there. And, and I think that this is kind of one of the reasons why I don't love this period of songs, which is crazy because later on in 69, everything for Abbey Road is amazing. I think my first exposure to most of these songs was the film. And I found the film extremely boring as a kid. So I think that like all those songs kind of like, yeah, I, I don't really like don't let me down. I know that's sacrilege, but like my don't let me down is watching it, watching them perform it unhappily. Right. So um, I think that kind of, cast a cloud on, on, on that kind of stuff for me. So yeah, I've, I've been watching let it be since the age of 13, probably 12 or 13. Mm-hmm. Ken, what about you? I never enjoyed let it be as much as I wanted to. I think that that's something that we can all identify with. Right. I was always kind of like glad to have it, but disappointed at the same time, if that makes any sense. Sure. Well, pretty much like most of the kiss catalog, <laughs> Brian, let it be. So in a nutshell, I started getting into the Beatles, really getting into the Beatles with a couple of friends around the time that John Lennon died. I was 11. Uh, it was a pretty pivotal moment in my life. I never had a VCR at home until much later. I had no opportunity to see such thing. Uh, I don't think my friends that I got into the Beatles with even had VCRs either. So I was very fortunate one day in eighth grade, it was either 83 or 84 family friends asked me to watch their younger kids and they knew I was a big Beatles fan and they went to the local uh, video rental store and they rented, let it be for me. Did they know that you had wanted to see it or was it just like a, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was a, a nice gesture. And uh, I think when the kids went to bed or something, I put it on. So I'm 13 or 14 years old. And I was just blown away, not because I thought it was a good film, but because, you know, I don't know if I ever thought I would see it. You Mm -hmm. know, I had no context for it or anything. And I always just remember that clip of, uh, what does Paul say? Good morning, Richie, or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. at the the start when he's sitting at the piano. Morning, Paul. Good morning, Rich. How are you this morning? I I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So, you know, I was a kid and yeah, I I thought it was fantastic. Brad, your thoughts. Yeah. Well, I've told this story before, I think, but um, I, I was actually into McCartney and wings before I was into the Beatles. I started to get into the, the Beatles, uh, early in 1980. And then I got that book by Nicholas Schaffner, um, Beatles forever. Mm -hmm. I think it's called. Yes. Which was that. Yeah. Yeah. That was the book that made me uh, a hardcore Beatles fan. And there was a Beatles convention coming up in December of 1980 in Boston, the first Boston Beatles convention. And so I got tickets for that. And as we all know, John, John was killed 
on December 8th, and the convention was held literally like a week or two weeks after. And there was talk about, should we cancel it? They ended up having it, and, it, and I went, and I was 16 or 17. I went by myself. And it was like one-third celebration and two-thirds wake was the vibe of, of the show. Like, as Craig said, you saw Let It Be at a convention. Well, I saw Let It Be at this convention, and it was so sad. I mean, the film has a depressing element to it anyway, right? Uh, The context around it. You add the whole thing about John being killed literally days before I see the film for the first time, and just the weight of all of that has always made it a tough watch for me. Um, so in so many ways, this, so much of this just redeemed it for me. Um, just that, just that experience. Um, so yeah, I still have a copy of let it be digitally. I'm not sure what the source was. And I, Mm -hmm. I put it on after I watched the third episode just to, just to get a look at it. And it, it is so grainy and dark and grant that it's probably a copy of something, but even so it just made so clear that what amazing restoration work they did on this thing. You got to give that Peter Jackson and his crew credit for the the audio and, and the film stock looks so great. It looks like it was shot yesterday. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. A friend of mine was commenting incidentally who likes the Beatles, but I would never have pictured him watching this because it's such a deep dive. But he told me he was in the middle of watching it and he was marveling at how it was shot. He thinks it looks very contemporary, which I thought was super cool. Yeah, Yeah. I would agree. I had this on videotape. And then when the wonder of RCA uh, CED came out, the weird CED thing, if anybody remembers those RCA select division things. Inside the cartridge. Yeah. It was basically a record that a laser read the video and a needle played the audio. And you would stick it in, pull the cartridge out, and it would play. And then it would say, you know, flip over. So you'd stick the cartridge back in and pull it back out. So, yeah, that that was a trip. I had that and Hard Day's Night. My bandmate had all three of them too, and we would attempt every few years to watch them, and they were just so completely trashed. Yeah, they were they were tough. They were that was a tough format CED. I do want to mention real quickly, if I may. My my wife is sick of the Beatles because I live with her, and right. I don't blame her. You know, I kind of I kind of live the Beatles, and you know, I listen to so many podcasts and stuff like that. She's sick of the Beatles, and I don't blame her, but. Mm-hmm kind of at every opportunity when I was watching it, she was in the room, she was over my shoulder watching. And at some point I said, I can't believe you're watching this. She said, I really enjoy watching this, this music get created. Just like so many people have said, you know, like we were saying about the song, get back. So I think that speaks very highly of, you know, I mean, it is the Beatles after all it's, you know, the, the biggest band of all time, right? So I just think that that speaks pretty well for who they were in general and the fact that, the, you know, and this stuff looks and sounds amazing. So this brings us into episode two, if you will, now. 
We see Paul talking about how he felt that they needed a father figure or a daddy or something to kind of like lead them, right? We probably do need really sort of a central daddy figure to say, you know, nine o'clock, leave your girls at home, lads. Paul says that he wants a figure to lead them and say, be here at 10 and leave the girlfriends at home. Meanwhile, Linda, I think, was in the same scene with him. So it's like, uh, hello. Um, I really think that Paul wanted John to lead. Well, there's um, there's that flower pot conversation, right? When they when John yeah. and Paul go to the cafeteria and they've surreptitiously stuck microphones in the flower pot or whatever, which is amazing. It's a really interesting conversation that they have. And Paul is kind of, you know, saying, John, that you were always the leader. And he's kind of, I mean, he's pretty disengaged at that point. Can I is this. You have always been boss. The moment that happens before the cafeteria scene that just blew me away was Paul talking with Ringo there, and he makes a joke that we'll get the top newscasters from all around the world, and we'll do Beatles songs, and then they'll come on and tell a story, and then we'll do another song, and then they'll come on and tell us another new headline, and then at the end of the show, we'll do the very last song, and the broadcaster would come on and say, the Beatles have just finished their last song, the Beatles are officially broken up, the news of the day, the Beatles, you know, and Ringo just like... I can't believe we're having this conversation. He's like sinks into his chair. I was talking to Neil last night about an idea I thought of for a, for a TV show. We should get like, uh, say, the editor of the Daily Mirror, a real hard news nut, rehearsing a team of really hard, incredible newsmen so that on the night of the show, in between all our songs is news, but the fastest and the hottest from every corner of the earth we just heard that in an earthquake and film and it's yes. like a red hot news program mm. and um and at the end the final bulletin is that the beatles have broken up it was also interesting to see paul joke that it would be odd that if in 50 years fans would be believing that yoko broke up the beatles because she sat on an amp and it's like boy he's telling the future again yeah <laughs> but it's going to be quit? such an incredible sort of comical thing like in 50 years time you know uh, they broke up because yoko sat on an m and uh, that moment where paul basically is telling michael Lindsay hogg and anyone who will listen look if we tell john you've got to choose yoko or the beatles he's picking yoko see but their point is that they they're trying to like be as near together as they can they want to stay together those two isn't it so it's all right, let the young lovers stay together. But it's not that bad, you know. We've got a lot out of people. So that it, I think John's saying now, obviously it came to a push between Yoko and the Beatles. It's Yoko, you know? Yeah, the, the writing was on the wall there. Yeah. We're going to pause for a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Then Billy Preston shows up and everything changes. Just it really the fact does. that they're in the room with him. How you doing? Oh, yeah. How you doing, baby? Good to see you. Oh, yeah. Hi, good to see you. 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 Every number's got a piano part or a. Yeah. And normally we overdub it, you know. Uh -huh. But this time we want to do it live. Yeah. I'm going to do nice. I mean, just live to ourselves. Yeah. Straight off one number after the other. Yeah. And that means having somebody in on, on scene. Yeah. So if you'd like to do that, you'd love it. Beautiful. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you'd be on the album. You get it? <laughs> it's like they respect this cat so much that they're not going to like worry about digestive biscuits or anything, you know, who's knitting and is the tea warm or whatever. By the way, have you ever seen so much toast consumed by a band ever in your life? And also now online, if you look, you can get uh, on Redbubble and such, people have made replicas of the tea mugs mm -hmm. with the color stripes seen all through this so you can get a set for your very own. We've come up to a point where Billy Preston's doing what he came to do in England, and he was doing a television appearance. So the guys had this great moment where they're like, oh, everything's cooking. Billy's here. Everything's great. It's wonderful. And he's gone, and John's like, let's add him to the band. And George is like, yeah, that'd be great. They joke about adding Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton and like having another set of Beatles that they wouldn't even have to be involved in. I mean, I just like him in our band, actually. Yeah. I like a fifth Beatle. I mean, a twig up something that was three, and that was four, and that was five. Yeah. <laughs> we can do that as well. You know, I asked Dylan to join the Beatles, yeah. and he would as well. You know, and we get, get them all in it. Yeah. You know, just we have a. We call it the Beatles and Coke. That'll be our band. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to pepper's lonely hearts. Band, isn't it? Yeah. Get them all. I just don't, because it's just bad enough for four. <laughs> Yeah, Paul is definitely the one who's kind of like, uh, you know, hang on a second. We got enough problems with the four of us, um, which is probably <laughs> true. But to me, this, the second episode, the things that stand out for me in that episode are, of course, Billy coming in and really stealing the show. He mm -hmm. plays great. And John really perks up and, and uh, like right away says, like, I want him in the band. You're in the group. <laughs> Because you know, he makes right. Don't Let Me Down work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Just from some of the body language and some of those shots and stuff like that, I kind of feel like 
Paul felt threatened by Billy, but knew he couldn't say no to him being there. Right. Billy was obviously such a monster of a player, you know, and Paul's a fine keyboardist himself, but not like Billy Preston. Right. <laughs> and with that whole, Oh, well then we have five problems or, or whatever the quote was. It just struck me that Paul's ego was, was pretty full at the time. Not, not that he's an egomaniac through this, but it's just a thought I had. Did, did anybody else uh, feel that at all? I might be totally full of crap, but I just picture there was no way that Paul would have let somebody else play his piano part. Oh, I think know, that's to, true. To or long winding road or something. I, I think I that's true. Yeah. And probably rightly so. I mean, he, those were his babies and he did a fine job playing them. I don't know that they needed to be sure. played by someone else. And you were obviously not going to lug a real piano <laughs> up to the roof. <laughs> I don't think the roof would have held it. <laughs> Um, You're lucky they all got up there. I know. That's right. The other thing that stuck out to me about episode two is um, is kind of the opposite of the arrival of Billy Preston is the the introduction, though he, he never appears in it, but Alan Klein comes mm-hmm. up in that second episode where John and Yoko are talking about meeting with Alan Klein. And that that's what really breaks up the band is Alan Klein. Yes. Yes. Yeah. How do you not play the Darth Vader theme? Right. You know, that would have been my big, if I was Peter Jackson, they would have had to talk me out of playing the Darth Vader theme when his name was mentioned. It's coming on Friday. I think you'll be with the end of the day, so about six o'clock on Friday. I think what we do is it's not Friday night. Friday night is... He's not going for a day, is it? No, no. I'll see you on Monday night. Yeah, okay. Tell him we'll go to dinner. I'm Oh, I see. And Glenn Johns is just like, yeah, I don't like this guy. I don't trust this guy. Yeah. Is it, yeah. Is it that says something about, he's a weird dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Have you met Alan before? I met him the other day, only, and I met him at the circus. He's just sort of said hello or something. A strange guy, isn't oh, he? He's fantastic. He really is very strange. Yeah. Very, very clever. Uh, but strange, man. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, he's uh, he is another MVP of this whole thing, yes. because um, the what is it, Magic Alec or what? I forget what his name is. Uh, who built this, the, yeah, he he built the studio, and it was a bunch of garbage, basically. Magic was, Alex is looked. such he's such an interesting character in the history of the yeah. Beatles and Apple, really, because. Is. Because he was a disaster that they just threw all this money at him. <laughs> and he never came up with Steve anything that wallpaper. worked. Yeah, nothing worked. Nothing, you know, all his ideas were whacked. At one point, they show well, that, that they bring that guitar, the guitar in. Was a bass. Yeah, that's a bass on one side and a guitar on the other. It's just <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. Like, and, and they're like, yeah, we'll give him some more money. Yeah, give him we'll some more money. Up yeah. Still made up by How'd you tune it? And this is the mock up on the two sided phase rhythm mock up. What? <laughs> it looks oh, like let's give him half a million quid. It looks a good idea. Yeah. Two sided yeah. phase rhythm mock Let's give it him just for this. I'll put it on show. <laughs> <laughs> and they they get there, and the this quote unquote studio he's building, none of it works. I'm a, I'm kind of bummed they didn't actually show him. They didn't find him. I, mean, I guess he never yeah, probably came up nice. from the basement. But it would be interesting to see who this lunatic. Was. There, there's a little but, bit of footage of him in anthology. But yeah, Glenn Johns. I 
I've never really understood why he... I, I know they weren't happy with his mix of the record, but I think that had more to do with what was on the record, you know, what was there. I, I, I'm sure he did a fine job. I mean, he's a legendary producer. But you really get a better feel for just his role in it. What was going on, this. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Craig, anything else you want to add about the second episode before we move on? What were your standout moments from that one, if you even remember? It's, they sort of all blur together for me, but... They they yep. do. I, uh, I, I've i watched straight through probably about four times. Oh, wow. Uh, well, I, should, I shouldn't say straight through. I've watched the whole thing four times straight through a couple times. Um, so uh, the parts do kind of blend together at this point. I, I, I thought it was a success based on how quickly I wanted to watch it again because yes. there were so many little things to catch. So in, in terms of that, I mean, the, the thing that really stands – as the most important part, there are two, of part two, the the uh, entrance of Billy Preston. You can't say enough about it. By the way, I met him when I was fourteen at my first and only wow. Budapest. Wow, jealous. Um, yeah, thank you. And uh, just the you know you think of all the Beatles footage we know from over the years, mm-hmm. and there's tons of it. It's used again and again and again and again. To think that under lock and key for 50 years was that footage of Paul breaking down in tears. Uh, that is the dramatic moment in this entire arc. Uh, and really just the, the other side of what may seem, you know, flippant from the band the day before uh, the reality sets in and Paul is looking you know, uh, something about the Beatles and Richard Buskin's uh, podcast, the Beatles naked have both done great episodes on this. But they talk about how, like, it's it's Paul accepting a death, and you see it mm-hmm. in his face, and it's, as Ken said, it's chilling. That's that's really the dramatic moment of this whole thing for me. So when I think of when I think of part two, I think of that moment with Paul and Ringo. Yeah. But we have to mention the last, very last bit, almost of uh, part two, and that is when Michael Lindsay Hogg. And uh, Glenn Johns approach Paul, and they whisper something about the the roof. The only thing is, we've got to get some permission, Paul. Yes, yes, yes. So the cops are coming to throw us off. So, what happens if we go on top of the other roof? Is there somebody else's roof? Then we can get had not only for disturbing the peace and the noise, also trespassing. Now, um, good. And here we are, up to the top of the toppermost of the poppermost on top of the roof. So it is now placed in Paul's head, which was weird. In part one, Paul makes a thing about we could get arrested by the cops and be drug out and right. beat. And Michael Lindsay Hogg says, I would love to see that, you know? Yeah. 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 It's funny. One As they're tossing every idea under the sun out about how do they, how do they wrap this thing up? That that's one of the early things that they come up with is, is the idea of them doing something where they're not allowed to do it. Right. Well, Just, Paul, yeah. Paul really comes off as like a lot more anarchistic than we ever thought he was in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when he's he talking about doing it. something where they trespass and they even talk about doing yeah. something in the House of Parliament, which that would have been wild. <laughs> Did anybody else feel that at some of the points where Paul was, you know, kind of monologuing a little bit that he had a hard time following what he was talking about? There were moments where I felt like, boy, I wish I knew what he was talking about. I I believe some of the dialogue may have been altered by drugs that were taken on the day of the filming. 
<laughs> I think I think yeah. we see little bits of it. But it was in the toast. <laughs> it was in the toast. There, there's a lot of discussion online about whether Paul's cigars are weed. Yeah. Um, people analyzing the puffs of smoke and saying, well, this this is not a cigarette puff of smoke. Uh, wow. That's the level of detail that some fans have. Oh, into. Lord. Oh, Lord. We will never. So, yeah. so I think that there, there might have been um, a little bit. And somebody also says that John takes out a joint at some point and looks at the camera and sees it and puts it right back in his pocket. Yes, yes. Yes. I didn't I didn't notice that, but uh there there are people on the lookout for things like this. So this is why I watch mm-hmm. it again and again and again. So um, part three. Yeah, before we get to part three, just to hit on a couple other overall things. Uh we talked about MVPs. Glenn Johns is certainly one. I was interested to see just how much George Martin was involved because I never really understood his role there because you know he he worked for EMI. He wasn't was never really a producer on this record. He didn't work for Apple, so he had no role there. But he he turns up quite frequently. We should get really underway today. Andy. We really got underway yesterday. It was a good day yesterday. Yeah, oh, from your point of view, I'm talking about from my point of view. Oh yeah, you should get on with it. Every time he's on camera, uh, just felt like a treat to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and he's clearly just kind of overseeing everything, right? You know, and he always looks so sharp. His hair is nice. He's always dressed nice. And I, I just love every shot with uh, with George Martin in it. Always he, posh. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, he was the and, best. And the other mm-hmm. person that I really wanted to mention is Mal Evans, who is all oh over this thing. And for years, yeah. you know, as a, I don't think the casual Beatle fan has a clue who Mal Evans is, but if you've ever done any reading or anything, you've seen that name. And he was with them since they were, you know, loading amps in and out of the Cavern Club. Mm-hmm. And you get he, an idea of how... their roadie. Yeah, and they rely the on him so much. He's the guy bringing them the food half the time. And George asks him to go and get, get his tie, and they ask him about where he can get good pairs of shoes. Mal, what was the name of that shoe shop somebody said is in Bond Street, a good one? Do you know a sh- good shoe shop near? There's a yeah, lot of shoe shops in uh, Bond Street. Yeah, but I just want, you know, like ordinary black leather shoes, just that I never get any, you know, because I'm never in shoe shops. Do you want me to bring the black open? <clears throat> if you could con somebody into coming with, you know, a selection of black slip-on size eights. Yeah, okay. Paul sends him in the errand to get the anvil, right? He's just... <laughs> Whenever they need something, Mal Evans is their guy. It's the, but it's so great to see him in there, and uh, he's just game for anything, right? Mal, have you got my acoustic, Martin? And a package of singies, Mal. And a package of singies, Mal. All right, so, episode three. Um, part three, in which Doris gets her oats. First thing we see is Richie coming in with Octopus's Garden, and George just zooms in on it, and he's thrilled with what Ringo is doing. It would be nice in paradise in an octopus's garden in the shade. But oh, God. <laughs> After the two times, the second time. John Lennon arrives and George is like gleeful, like Richie's got a song, you know, check it out. Yeah. And, uh, well, and he asks him, well, what do I play on this Richie? And Ringo says drums. 
That's and great. John says something about like, I'm not like Paul with his, with his strong arms. I need a, I'm going to have to have a cigarette before I get behind that kit. Well, I don't need you. You be drums. I think Paul would want to do drums, only with his strong left arm. I'm not getting on that kit without a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> so weird. Yeah, it's yeah. very it, bizarre. Again, it's so great to see how they all work you know, the, the contribute to each other's material, um, on the lyrics, even Mal is in there sometimes contributing to the lyrics. They're very unselfish in, in that way. I love seeing them playing each other's songs. Like I think it's back in the first episode, but there's a, a scene where Paul is singing. I'm so tired, which is great. I'm so tired. I haven't slept a wing. I'm so tired, my mind is on the blink. I wonder, should I call you and get myself a drink? No, 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 lay off the booze, boy, because I'm so tired. Right. And then at one point, he, he does Strawberry Fields, right? He sings a yes. little bit. Yeah. Yes, It's just, just wonderful. have a new presence in the studio and it is heather mccartney <laughs> barking about with the bands we see the band discuss eating kittens with her john is so good with her <laughs> he's so funny we've got some baby kittens that are only about that big mm, they're gonna eat them no lots of people do you know i don't baby kittens they've just been born yesterday on toast you put pastry around them and you have cat pie a few days they were just born, weren't they? Oh, well, you better wait a week or two before you eat them. No, I'm never going to eat them. Well, that's very really good. Really good. You know, it's just, John definitely was not in, in his best uh, shape during this. But, you know, the camera loves him. No. He, he, he's very, just his personality is very magnetic, even when he's not contributing a whole lot. He's still just always great to watch. They died that we might wank. <laughs> I'm talking about the Boy Scouts who aren't allowed to masturbate. Oh. It's very tempting when you're wearing shorts. If they only wore long trousers, maybe they'd stand a chance, you know. But I can tell you, you don't go blind, but very short-sighted. <laughs> There's that one moment, well, several moments where he keeps saying, ladies and gentlemen, what, what was it? Well, uh, it's because Lindsay Hogg had filmed, had filmed, yeah, the Rolling Stone Circus. And he yeah. asked John to, at one point, like, would he record an intro? I think that's the whole point of it. He's asking him, would he record an intro for it? Yeah. And John yeah, does like. into the finished film. Yeah. We saw the rough cut last night at the circus. Oh. Would you like to do the link into the stones for the circus, or would you not like that? What's that? Well, we've found, we haven't shot anybody announcing the road in the scouts. Oh, I see. 
Well, what, what kind of thing? It would just be, uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones, or, or words to that effect. If it's straight, yeah, yeah I'll it's do straight. It straight. Okay. And now, your host this evening, the Rolling Stones. And now, your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. And now, your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. And now, our host for this evening, the Bony Rolls. And now, your host for this evening, the Rolling Stones. At this point, George brings something in, and he's asking for advice on writing the tune. And John suggests that just say anything that fits until you find what you need. And who knows that the song could have been something in the way she moves, attracts me like a cauliflower, pomegranate, or like a moth towards a candle. Something What could it be, Paul? Something in the way she moves. What attracted me at all? Just say whatever comes into your head each time. Attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word. Yeah. yeah, but I've been through this one like for about six months. Attracts me like a pomegranate. <laughs> we could have that. Attracts me like a pomegranate. Something in the way she moves. It's both an insight into how John writes and how, how George writes, too. Then Yoko and John announced that Yoko's divorce is final. They're that was an uncomfortable excited, moment, I, I thought. You have to figure how weird it was for the other three guys who probably loved Cynthia. Yeah, right? definitely. Yeah. At this point, Alan Klein is mentioned. And there's a storm cloud on the horizon, right? Chills when Ringo says this, it would be nice to have a con man on our side for a change. Right. Be careful what you wish for, right? Oh, boss, and my con man who's on our side for a change. Or is the con man on the other side? Like I said before, I mean, that's really what ultimately splits the band up. It's not Yoko. It's not the Let It Be film or, Lin- or Michael Lindsay Hogg. It's, it's this... There's no way that Paul is going to let himself be managed by Alan Klein. And there is no way John or George are going to let themselves be managed by Linda Eastman's family. And I get that, but it's just a shame that that's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Within two, two and a half years or less than three years, if, if my timeline is, is, is not wrong, that Paul is proved right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he is. Absolutely. Yep. It was 71, I think, that the, that the wheels fell off for Klein as far as the uh, other three went. Yeah. Now they have some fun, and we see this really bizarre moment where John and Paul are singing with clenched teeth facing one another. I think the two of them had a future in ventriloquism if the <laughs> whole music thing didn't work out. Have you ever seen anybody sing with clenched teeth like that? Not I've, for an entire I mean, song. <laughs> Hugo's 
it's still amazing to me all through this, right up to this point and beyond, they're still screwing around so much in the studio and instead of actually accomplishing mm -hmm. anything. I think there's a point too where George in the second or third episode where he, he says something to the effect of, well, every time something has worked out for us, it's just, we've just kind of gone with the flow and it happens. The things that have worked out best ever for us haven't really been planned any more than this has. It's just, you know, it's like you just go into something and it does it itself. You know, whatever it's going to be, it becomes that. You know, they're still counting on that, that when they finally get to the roof, it's so amazing to me how great that comes together and how great mm -hmm. they sound on the roof, considering all up to that point, I'm just, part of me is thinking like, God, how are they going to get it together? Because they're still really sloppy. Yeah. Isn't it weird that you know everything you know and you are still like, how are they going to play yeah. this song? Yeah. I've seen this movie like before, literally. But you're <laughs> still like... I don't know. They don't sound ready to me. And then <laughs> no. they get there. All the other things they were thinking of doing, the roof is literally the, the smallest of goals of where they set out yeah. this big potential thing they could do, all these potential things they could do, and they end up hauling the equipment up on the roof where nobody can even really see them. And yet yeah. it is so cathartic when you actually yes. get there. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, and I think but, it you feels know, so cathartic because, you know, watching this entire thing is a journey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Craig, I thought of you. Uh, I know you're probably thinking, Ken, you're watching The Beatles. Why are you thinking of me? Because I, mm -hmm. when I think of the film Woodstock, I think of you now because you went through an exhaustive love of that film. And yeah. I you can't look at the Beatles on the rooftop the way that they're showing it in this and not think of the way that they filmed Woodstock a bit. Do you, do you get any of that idea? Yeah, I, I thought the same. I thought the split screen was used perfectly for this as well. I mean, there's a lot riding on the rooftop portion of this and mm -hmm. they, the way that Peter Jackson presents it was, it, it could not have been any better. It doesn't leave us like the full audio to extract. There are some things overlaid, but it's giving you the entire story complete in real time. Those complaints on the street as they happen. Yeah. Uh, those, those bumbling <laughs> bobbies at the door of Apple, maybe the most r ridiculous and comic. There are two bits of comic relief that I love throughout this. First, is that you couldn't write better dialogue for George when it comes to anything about money. Like whenever money came up, <laughs> don't they say charity begins at home? Just like yeah. everything. Who's paying for that? We can't even give Fender to give us free amps. <laughs> so uh, there's that. And then there are the, the two bobbies at the door of Apple. Just, I can't believe this. What What is going on? Surely you can dub the music to this film. Well, these studios soundproofed or something. Yeah. It's on the roof. They're on the roof, are they? Yeah, because this is they've been recorded in the studio, and they've just done this to get some, you know, some scenery and things. Well, you know, I mean... Well, if you're doing the picture, I'm sure you can dump the sound onto the film. Huh? The whole thing is about the live thing. It's got to be live, you see. Which is just 
how crazy is that conversation right. unraveling throughout the whole beginning yeah. of this? Uh, it's it's just wonderful. But yes, the secretary was an MVP at that moment, you know, because she's <laughs> so, like so great. Yeah. yeah. How about the uh, how about the old woman on the street saying that they woke her from from her sleep? <laughs> yeah. Oh. I interrupted yeah. my nap time. Uh, yeah. I just can't see that it makes sense. It woke me up from my sleep, and I don't like it. And it's weird because George was against this the whole time when the cops are saying, cut off the amps. And Mal goes over and kills George and John's guitar amps. George goes over and turns the thing back on. This was the guy who was against this whole thing. The look on his face is great. Yeah. I have a thought about Billy Preston. He really gets short shrift of uh, footage on the roof. Yeah, it's a shame. How is that possible? Toward the end of the performance, there's a couple of shots of him. But otherwise, pretty much the shots of him are incidental, uh, you know, in the background. And that's a shame because if there is a true MVP to this outside of the four of them, it's Billy Preston. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I have a complaint about the film, it's how it winds up. Like, I almost wish that we would have got to see in the performances of the two of us long and winding road and let it be that we saw in the let it be movie. But it it almost would have been like, here's your payoff along with the rooftop while you're here. Right. Yeah. I, I disagree. I think that they did it perfectly. I think kind of just like shoving that. I mean, because the rooftop is the, the, the piece de la resistance of this whole thing. It's the culmination of it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that we saw them in the control room after that was perfect. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But I think that then like throwing these three songs complete at the end would just be like, okay, it's not going to end. I, I think, I think it ended at a great point. We, we have those complete in the let it be film. Anybody that's seen this has probably seen those. They're paid respect greatly alongside the credits and they don't mm-hmm. short change you on it. They just kind of, found a different place for it. And I think that it ends more as a kind of jovial, uplifting credit sequence. And I think right. that it, it works better there. Which I think a lot of this film was informed by where we are now pop culturally, if you will. Like we now live in a post uh, YouTube post bonus scenes and you know, all that. Now we are now trained for that. Right. Like I'm amazed by people who really, only care about a few Beatles songs that were fascinated by this project. And I think because they're seeing what they see, whether it be on TikTok, Instagram, or YouTube stream, they're seeing the Beatles actually creating things. So they're seeing stuff as the old saying is, you know, cinema verte, right? That actual moment, right? Yeah, I mean, it really is. Ultimately, it's an insight into the creative process and what it's like to be in a band they really did stick to their guns about no overdubs and thank mm-hmm. God Billy Preston came in uh, yes. and then they hire Phil Spector to produce the record and all that goes to hell. But, but up until this point, they certainly stuck to that and it's the four of them plus Billy playing for real. There's no BS there. And that's, that's all great. There's no concrete news about a physical release of this. So the people that have been hanging their hat on, I'm not subscribing to Disney for a month. I'll wait until it comes out. 
Um, there's no guarantee that it's going to come out. We're not really right. living in a physical media world. Beatles might be able to overcome that with a get back Blu-ray and I'd love to see it, but I also wouldn't be surprised if we don't. Yeah. And I would love a, a more extended cut to go out there. I, again, I don't know how plausible that is or how realistic that is because I never thought we'd get the eight hours that we got. Mm-hmm. And Correct. the other thing I just want to kind of throw in real quick, this really benefits from having no talking heads in the film. I totally agree. Yeah, and that more, was that pulls it for me every time, you know, it's the cliche, right? As you get somebody who has quote unquote credibility today to the youngsters to talk about why this, this act from umpteen years ago is is meaningful and you inevitably end up with a lot of the same people i i like dave grohl as a guy i think he's fine i think i agree with a lot of what he says i'm not particularly a foo fighters fan but no i think it was a very very smart move not to do that this time to let the Um, work stand for itself without any yeah i mean even even there's no beetle experts or anything like that in here um let alone famous people there's just the original footage and nothing new added. And I thought that was perfect and it didn't hold well, your hand. No, again, no pun intended, but it didn't, right. you know what I mean? Like if, if you are a newbie, it's somewhat challenging. I can see, but all the better for it. Cause it didn't need any of that extra, you know, it, we didn't need to be, have it explained to us by some talking right. head. And it's weird because the non, the non super fans, I'm surprised at how many people have come to me and said, I was blown away by it. And I'm like, I can't imagine you chewing through all of that. You know what I mean? Brad so Brian, first, your final thoughts on Get Back. It just felt like it got better and better the, the more I watched it. I, I have to be totally honest with you. In the middle of the second performance of Get Back on the rooftop, I had this like mm-hmm. wave of emotion just out of the blue hit me it it was just incredible i thought and it just led me to think what a what a gift we have in this piece it's just incredible craig yeah i would say the same um i i I can only sum it up really by uh there was something that richard buskin said in his episode uh last they they put out an episode right after each one aired and he can be fairly critical when it comes to beatles product and i think all of us can in terms of what can be included in this what you know did they leave out uh richard made a point to say that this one is absolutely for the fans they are not trying to make something that's for everybody this one was for us people will study this for a long time there are so many nuggets here and things that we had ideas about before now we have context now we have video for some of it it's basically rewriting the story uh, because now we have the tools to understand it better so it's a huge success and i love it i i think it's a it's a home run ken Final thoughts. I agree 100%. I laughed. I cried. I learned a lot. <laughs> and um, without getting, you know, too deep into it, I never thought I'd see it. So it, it means the world to me. And it may sound weird to be this hung up on a band, but this is not a band. This is the Beatles. Yeah. I mean, I, if they aired all 60 hours, I would watch it. Um, sure. <laughs> 
I would uh-huh. I would take as much Beatles as I could get. It is amazing that we got this. There's so little new that we will ever get, you know. So to get any nugget of new Beatles stuff, let alone almost eight hours of it, is is amazing. You yeah, know, this was we, a gold mine of new. Yeah, yeah, and just a chance to you know re reappreciate so much of this music and. You know, the Beatles are my favorite band. I know it's the least original thing about me, but um, they are my favorite band. And this music means the world to me. And we're all getting older. We all have lost people along the way. We've lost Beatles along the way. Every day, I think, at some point during the day, I think there will be a time sooner rather than later where we will not have a Paul and Ringo when they'll all be gone. And so I treasure all of this content so much and uh, didn't quite bring me to tears, but it brought me close at a few moments. And it was just the whole thing was just such a great experience. It was really something. I'm here. All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining me for this. I really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to talk to all of you. Ken, Craig, Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed Get Back as much as we did, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation, too. Thanks for joining us for this special episode. We'll be back again soon with another new show. All of our previous shows can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, and on our own website, lovethatsongpodcast.com. If you have comments or want to leave a review, You can do so on Podchaser or on our Facebook page. Just look for the I'm in Love With That Song podcast. You'll find us. We are part of the Pantheon family of podcasts, home to many of the best music-related podcasts out there. So be sure to check those out. As always, I thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. I suddenly discovered I was halfway out of tune, but I continue playing because I'm no goon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
Pantheon.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 